Welcome to KUOW's Speakers Forum. I'm your host, Sonia Harris. I'm sitting in for John O'Brien. What is luminosity? According to some basic physics, it's just one of the trinities of light's properties. It sits alongside brightness and flux and contributes to warmth. Besides being a lovely concept to ponder during a gray Pacific Northwest January, luminosity is also the communal theme in this episode of Speakers Forum. Presented by the Seattle-based writing center, Hugo House, this virtual event featured the works of authors and Hugo House fellows, Sasha LaPointe, Abby Polakoff, Joyce Chen, Piper Lane, Shelby Handler, and Jen Soriano. The writers share personal stories and poems that illuminate and examine family, community, language, and traditions. Through the lens of luminosity, the writers explore themes of resilience, life, and feminism. Hugo House is a space committed to helping writers, where people can read words, hear words, and make their own words better. This event was a celebration and the conclusion of Hugo House's 2019-2020 Fellowship Writing Program. The event took place on December 3rd via Zoom from Hugo House. Please note, this talk does contain language of an adult nature. Thank you, welcome. Um, I would like to say a few words and my gratitude to our cohort because they've given me a concept um, since I'm completely overwrought with my profound adoration of all of them. And I think it will allow me to be somewhat articulate through my emotions. So I was thrilled to see luminosity as the conceptual underpinning of tonight's reading. It gave me an opportunity to think about what's made this cohort so unique and important um, to me, to the community, to one another. It also gave me some opportunity to do a bit of studying, which I love, a um, little bit of review. So luminosity is one of the trinity of light's properties, and it sits alongside brightness and flux. There are a lot of complex notations that some of us may recollect. Um, any physicists in the virtual room can help me with this, but um, joules and lumens, and I think at some point in my introduction to physics, I learned that you can plug 10 to the 28th power into some kind of equation to calculate the way that the sun is that much hotter than your table lamp. In physics, luminosity specifies intrinsic brightness and it's quantified by the amount of energy an object can emit. Very often, luminosity is contingent upon multiple bodies in the celestial sky. And I think that's fitting for tonight because in our cohort, I feel that We've touched each other in particular ways that have allowed us to really not only illuminate ideas, but there's a warmth that we've shared to get through these times that makes it, it makes it unique. It makes this a singular relationship for me, at least as a mentor. So in our literary world, luminosity gets tossed around quite a bit. You could call a beautiful, subtle sort of textual book of poetry luminous. You could call an urgent, fiery piece of prose luminous too. So I wouldn't hesitate to label any one of our writers writing as luminous, but in this time, I just wanna hold space for their warmth and for the ways that they've really shown me what a community can be and do. So I feel particularly um, pleased that it's a pertinent label and lens that we get to conclude in this sort of blaze of communal light. Um, so I'm keeping it short and sweet, um, but please do welcome me um, 
in celebrating our cohort's final reading as a cohort, but certainly not our final reading together, certainly not their final reading in our community. So thank you. So um, the very first time I met Sasha Takshablu Lapointe um, was actually through her words. And it was a year ago, uh, and it was September, and it was at the Hugo House, actually. And it was during a reading for the Indelible and the Hippocampus Anthology. And I remember hearing her read and thinking, holy crap, I get to be in community with this badass and being really, really intimidated. And I remember actually going up to her afterwards and saying something super awkward, probably like, I really love your reading. Um, I really felt it. And fast forward to now, 12 months later, when we've been in fellowship for the past year, I still feel that sense of awe whenever I read and hear her words. Um, but I can also say that I now know her off the page as well. And she's the most incredibly real and down to earth and generous person I know. And um, just as a quick example, she pulled bouquets from her garden and pulled tarot cards ahead of our mid-year reading. Um, and that was just so special. And all doing this, by the way, while she had not one, but two books in the works. I just wanted to shout that out. Um, Sasha has a poetry collection, Rose Quartz, which is forthcoming from Milkweed in 2022. And she has an amazing memoir, which I believe we'll hear a little bit from today, Red Paint, which is forthcoming from Counterpoint Press. Um, and Sasha is so luminous because she is the embodiment of the two words that I think we've used a lot this year as fellow fellows. Um, she's both fierce and tender. I think she would say that this is because of the Gemini in her. I think I would argue that it's actually because she dared to embrace the wholeness of herself and ourselves in a way that is just so inspirational. And if Sasha were a source of light, I think she would be without a doubt the moon because she is always present. She pairs well with darkness and she's constantly evolving. Um, a literal guiding light, uh, guardian of the sea and has so many phases or as Sasha would say, so many layers to her beyond what meets the eye. Um, so excited to uh, introduce our first reader, Sasha LaPointe. Oh my gosh. Um, wow. The personal introductions. Um, I should have taken into account how emotional that would make me. Joyce, thank you. I'm like, my voice is wavery. Um, wow. Thank you. That was so beautiful. And um, thank you uh, to Laura, to Kristen, uh, to Rob and Hugo House, and to my amazing uh, luminous cohort. Um, this has been an amazing year. This has been um, such a, of all years to need support. Um, I have felt very supported and held by this cohort and I have a big gratitude for that. I'm gonna, um, I think we were supposed to start with um, a question to the audience, um, something to think about or, or put in the chat. Um, we were all supposed to come up with a question and my question I suppose for you guys tonight would be to um, consider if you were going to make a quarantine mixtape what would be on it? What are some songs or albums or an artist that you keep returning to, to, to get through this? So what's on your quarantine mixtape? Uh, that's my question. And I also know that we were gonna start um, uh, our reading with um, quotes from, um, from black authors, um, much like we did in our, in our, our early reading. And so uh, to start that off, my quote comes from Bell Hooks. I began writing a book on love 
because I felt the United States moving away from love. So that's my quote. Um, and I am going to be reading from the memoir tonight, which is something I have never done. <laughs> so this is a first, and I thought that it was appropriate to um, to step up and share this. And um, it's a big move for me. So if I, I don't know, I feel more comfortable in poetry for some, for whatever reason, but um, yeah, I'm just going to read um, the a bit of the prologue and then the first section of the upcoming memoir, Red Paint. So thank you all so much for being here for this big first for me. We were a hunter-gatherer society. We were nomadic. We lived along the coasts and on the rivers. We moved with the water. We picked berries and bracken root. We wove garments out of cedar and mats for sleeping out of cattail grass. Shellfish and salmon were important to us. We lived in cedar plank houses. We lived communally and we held winter ceremonies. In the longhouse, people gathered. They built a great fire, then they danced. They danced to the pounding of drums on dirt floors with bare feet. With smoke thick in the air, my ancestors danced until dawn broke. When the missionaries arrived, they banned the Coast Salish spiritual practices. Ceremonies went underground, held in secret. Treaties were passed and eventually the Salish ancestral religion was given back to the people, but now it was protected, private. It is not my job to tell the story of what happens in the longhouse. My mother has taught me to behave a certain way, to honor and uphold our traditions and the wishes of my elders. We come from a long line of Salish medicine workers. We respect this. What happens in the longhouse is not what the story is about, but this is a story about healing. This is a story about what I've learned from my ancestors. My ancestors participated in winter dances. They wore red paint. Hadiu. There is a word that hangs next to the front door of my parents' home. Written on an index card in blank, black ink, it reads Hadiu. It is the Lashutzid word for come in. It welcomes me. Every time I see the sign, I sound out the word and wonder if I am saying it wrong. Hadiu. I have never learned to speak our traditional language. On a rainy afternoon in midsummer, I walked up the road to visit my parents. I had a question to ask. I came to the door. The word and I had our ritual. Then I punched in the security code, 1492. Really, this is the code. Sometimes it's easier to remember the hard things. The year Columbus discovered America, clicked the mechanism unlocking the front door, letting me into my family's home. I've often wished for the, the technology. Um, I've often wished I understood the technology well enough to program 1491. It is a small house, small and old, and it has been in my family for generations. It sits on the large slope of a yard on a hill that looks out towards Mount Tahoma, which like my parents' lock combination has also been colonized, renamed after a white admiral. Now this mountain is known as Mount Rainier. On some old maps of Tacoma, you can still see the lines that border this area of the east side, labeling it the Indian allotment land. This is the reservation. The river is polluted. There are no grocery stores in walking distance, but from the hill we can see downtown. We can look out at the Salish Sea. A white friend once told me he moved his family away from Tacoma because he wanted to have a garden. He wanted to teach his young son how to grow things and he told me, you can't do that here, the soil is bad. 
I made my way through the kitchen. I passed the laundry room and thought of my ancestor, a woman called Aunt Susie. This part of the house used to be her bedroom. My parents told me that as an old woman during her last days, Aunt Susie often sat alone and told stories to herself in the traditional language. Whenever I walked by this part of the house, I felt the arms, the hair on my arms stand up. Some houses are haunted by ghosts. Our house hangs on to words and stories. I found my parents in the dining room. My mom sat with a spread of language books laid out beho before her, a mosaic of traditional words and old photographs. She was planning the next language conference. My dad looked up from his own book and the two of them smiled at me. We made small talk, a recent poetry reading, the book I was working on, my siblings. My mom set up, set a cup of coffee down in front of me and took her place next to my dad across the table. The room was quiet. I want to know if it's okay that I wear the red paint. I was cautious and slow in my asking. I knew that it was ceremony I was asking for. My mom rose from the table silently. Without a word, she disappeared downstairs as my dad sat quietly next to me. As I waited, my eyes wandered to the large cedarwood cabinet against the wall. I have known it since childhood. It used to stand in my great-grandmother's house, and it contained cedar baskets, carvings, and small talismans. I focused on the doll on the second shelf, the Sasha doll. The doll had been gifted to my mother as a child. My grandmother had to special order it from a Swiss doll maker based in Germany. There were no Native American dolls when my mother was young, just Barbie dolls and baby dolls blue-eyed and yellow-haired, but my grandmother had wanted her daughter to have a doll that resembled her. It was the only doll at the time with olive skin, dark hair, and brown eyes, the perfect Indian baby, one my mother could truly hold as her own. Imprinted on the doll's back in bold letters was Sasha. This is how my mother named me. This doll was my first namesake. When I was a child, I was obsessed with the Sasha doll. I asked to take her to show and tell. I was proud of this strange thing, this relic whose name I bore, but I've always been a clumsy girl. And when I brought the doll to my first grade show and tell, I dropped her on the pavement. When I picked her up, I saw her arm had broken off. I was beside myself with shock. I picked the pieces up and tried to shove them back into the, the arm back into its delicate socket. I held the two pieces together with all of my might, thinking they might magically fuse back together. I can fix you, I thought, I can fix you. To my horror, the doll had to be taken to the doll hospital to mend what had been broken. The doll doctor did what I could not and put her back together again. After she was fixed, the doll and I became estranged. I had failed her. With shame, I watched my mother take the doll back and put her on the shelf. I never touched her again. In addition to the Sasha doll, the, house, the shelf housed cedar baskets, paintings, and old photographs. One photograph in particular my mother had shown me before. It featured a woman in silver and sepia tone standing next to a river. She looked strong. She was proud and sturdy and beautiful. This is your great-great-grandmother, Louise, my mother told me when I was 10. Louise was my middle name. In contrast to the woman in the photograph, I was a pale, distractible thing. Surely there had been a mistake. You come from a long line of strength, my mother assured me. You carry it in your name. 
The very vessel that held all these artifacts came from another woman whose name I carry, Louise's daughter, my great-grandmother, Violet Blue Hilbert, gifted me her Skagit name. To be a namesake is a great responsibility. You're my namesake and you're going to do important things, she would say to me. There is a photograph of me at the naming ceremony, small in a blue dress, mess of brown ringlets falling around my face as I teeter precariously close to the edge of a picnic table. The photo was taken in 1986. I am three years old. My arm is outstretched as if reaching for someone out of frame and I am smiling. I'd like to think it was my great grandmother just out of reach, coming to gather her namesake up in her arms, but there is no way of knowing. I have white socks with ruffles and strappy shoes. You can tell from the photo that my mother wanted me to look nice. You can also tell by the grin on my face that moments after the photo was taken, I would be barefoot, that my dress would be streaked in grass stains. When remembering that day, my mother sighs, laughs a little, and says, I looked across the yard, saw you on the table dancing next to a boombox, and I just knew you were going to be a handful. That day, relatives passed me along in their arms. As uncles tended the fire, as the salmon baked, friends and family tousled my hair, pinched my cheeks, and said things like Taksha Blue number two and what hard shoes to fill. I like to think that my great-grandmother knew what she was doing that day, that she knew the counter curse I would someday need. Like the fairy godmother in Sleeping Beauty who, gifted, who saved her gift for last and passed to the sleeping princess the only thing that would wake her. As a child, I would long for what princesses possessed, magic, courage, enchanted slippers, and the love of brave princes. I would come to yearn for new worlds and ways to escape. What I wouldn't realize was the power that was bestowed upon me that day, the magic my great-grandmother passed down. And it wasn't true love's kiss, it wasn't a prince, it wasn't a spell or a slipper, it was a name, like an incantation, Taksha Blue. It comes from deep in me, travels through parted lips out into the world and stays there. Thank you. Um, and now I have the uh, massive honor of introducing our next reader. Joyce Chen is a writer, editor, and um, I first read Joyce's work in the early days of our cohort meetings. I remember feeling floored in the first few sentences of that first piece I read. She opened strong in this gutting scene of witnessing a near-death experience on a plane, and I was riveted. There was a darkness and a light within her work, this beautiful handling of death and mortality. And as the piece went on, she meandered through memories of visiting family in Taiwan, memories of her own grandmother. She had me at grandmother. As she ruminated on her language, bringing to the page this stark honesty and vulnerability, having never been fluent in it, my heart recognized a kindred spirit. It's a hard thing to come from strong grandmothers and lost languages. And Joyce's work speaks to that in the way that it lights up an otherwise dark space. Her work is both bone and light, harrowing and heartening. It has been inspiring to work alongside this force of nature. Joyce brings a glow to the table, to anything she reads, writes, or shares. Writing is often a hard world to navigate as we get bogged down in the dark, but it's important to stay there for a time, long enough to explore it, to find beauty in it. Joyce does just that. And if she were a source of light, Joyce would be some gorgeous form of bioluminescence, some glowing neon floating the depths of deep, deep blue ocean, lighting up the way in dark waters. Thank you, Joyce. Um, 
Thank you so much for your words, um, which I still have that same reaction as I did a year ago. Um, so uh, to kind of kick off my reading, one thing I wanted to put into the chat uh, in terms of a question to just kind of get that chat flowing is what's one word that describes how you're feeling as we wind down 2020? Just one word, just no big deal. And um, in kind of uplifting Black voices and selecting a quote, it was difficult, but it came down to this one um, by Claudia Rankin from Citizen, an American lyric. Um, Memory is a tough place. You are there. If this is not the truth, it is also not a lie. I'm gonna actually be reading an excerpt from Grandmother Rituals. And, uh, what you need to know just before it begins is a little bit of what Sasha had mentioned. Um, I was on a plane back to Taiwan for my grandmother's funeral and witnessed a woman on the plane almost uh, die, but she did not. The Mandarin phrase for come home is huijia, and it literally means to return home. There's no literal translation for the English phrase go home. Instead, huijia is an all-encompassing way to talk about the act of return, recalibration, hearth, safety. There is no other way to enter a home than to arrive again. Relatedly, the word hui itself means to return, and I've heard it often used in conjunction with travels to Taiwan, with family reunions, and when I was living and working in New York for the better part of a decade, with flights back to the West Coast from the East. Whenever my brother and I would visit with relatives in Taiwan, however, they always use this word to ask when we were heading back to the States. Literally translated, they were asking when we were returning home to the States. In this way then, traveling between the two countries became a sort of continual homecoming. Whichever direction we flew, we were always returning home. My paternal grandparents visited America several times when my brother and I were younger. I must have been two years old the first time they visited. It was before my first trip to Taiwan, some seven years after my parents had immigrated to the United States. I don't remember much from that trip, but I recall seeing photographs and videos later as an adult. The six of us, my parents, my brother, my grandparents and I, flew to Seattle and boarded a ferry bound for Victoria Island, about three hours northwest of the Emerald City. There's a home video of my grandmother carrying tiny me all bundled up in a white sweatshirt with a pattern of blue and pink elephants across the front. She's walking along the ferry's deck outside or trying to. The wind is unrelenting, eating up all the sound on the footage. My mother's narration is only audible in blips. My grandmother is wearing surprisingly westernized clothing in the video, a sweater with Tommy girl emblazoned across the front and blue jeans, a different sort of attire than I've ever seen her wear. Her sunglasses though, I recognize. There's no mistaking the tortoise shell frames that were her trademark since before I could remember. When I asked my mother about the incongruity of her outfit on that trip years later, my mother laughed, explaining that the airline had lost my ama's luggage on the flight over from Taiwan. And so the two of them had to go on a frenzied shopping trip in downtown Seattle just to make sure she had enough to wear for the duration of their stay. It was a sort of helter-skelter welcome to the States that my own mother had experienced when she and my father first landed at JFK in New York City years earlier. Perhaps the memory of the frantic shopping trip made my mother laugh because it reminded her, her of her own arrival to the States, of the way that the country seemed to resist her presence. Perhaps she laughed because she too had never seen my elegant grandmother in blue jeans. All I know is that she laughed and laughed and laughed and in that laugh, I heard a release. 
Ambling off the plane at Talgren International Airport is always disorienting. Growing up, my parents often opted to take the midnight flight out of Los Angeles, a crowded and hectic affair made worse by the fact that so many other families were making the same voyage home too, with similarly oversized suitcases stuffed with bulk vitamins, American clothing, toys, and books, pushing and shoving through long lines at the check-in counter. My older cousins in Taiwan often requested name brand cosmetics from the States. One of my aunts asked for gummy bears. Taiwanese American kids who looked like my brother and me tugged at their parents' arms and ran around the airport terminal, bored and up, up past, way past their bedtime. This was the chaos from which we departed. Then, after a nearly 14-hour flight, we would inevitably land not the next day, but the one after that, at a god-awful early hour of the morning, often before any of the airport's vendors had even opened up shop. Upon landing and deplaning, the tropical humidity would rush in through the cracks of the covered walkways, like steam releasing from an overcooked tea egg. There would be plenty of eager chatter too, hurried words exchanged amongst family members in a myriad of different languages as people pushed past each other to get through customs so that they could be discharged fully into the thick Taiwan heat. This arrival was no different. And as I slowly made my way toward the front of the plane after we touched down, pulling my carry-on luggage behind me, I was met with the usual flurry of activity. Parents nagging their kids to walk faster, older couples searching the seat back pockets for their glasses, their hats, their pens. The familiarity of the sounds and the motions, even the fogginess of post-flight hangover, however, eventually gave way to a swell of dread, of wondering what had happened to the elderly woman and her middle-aged daughter since the remainder of the flight had continued without incident. It felt entirely possible that I'd drunk the whole thing, an alarmingly realistic projection of my own anxieties. Had I? I let my eyes scan the backs of the heads in front of me, and in the next row over, everyone shuffling down the aisles toward the exits. I thought I spotted the back of the elderly woman's silvered head, saw it stiffly bobbing along in a sea of black hair that mirrored my own. If she'd awoken mid-trip, I wonder if she had been disoriented, if she looked at her daughter sitting next to her and seen a stranger. If she hadn't, I wonder whether her daughter had slept at all, whether she'd stayed vigilant just in case her mother had another episode, this time one that she wouldn't wake from. As I stepped down from the plane and onto the elevated walkway, a gust of warm air greeted me. The familiar smell of mothballs and dampness reminded me that I was back in Taiwan. The fluorescent lighting of the walkway blinked a harsh white and through the small windows dotting the long corridor, I could see glimpses of the distinct lush greenery and gray skies that I had come to associate with a tiny island country, with home. Then just beyond the walkway, past a row of flight attendants bowing and smiling at passengers as we deplaned, I saw her, the elderly woman. Now seated in a wheelchair, her daughter crouched by her side as two attendants spoke with them. As I walked by the pair, I saw that the elderly woman looked dazed, surprised to have emerged from her slumber in a different country, a different place. Did she know that she'd had to skip a day in order to be here? I imagine it was a comfort to hear voices speaking Taiwanese, her mother tongue. I imagine she felt safe back on solid ground, tended to by her daughter, her kin. I imagined a lot of things, in part because I couldn't fathom what would have happened if she hadn't made it, and in part because I felt a twinge of guilt that her proverbial wheel had dropped and that my own grandmother's had not. She'd survived. I knew the guilt was there too, because I felt connected to this stranger, an emotional bond that I was still trying to muster up for the family I was returning to. In Mandarin, there are at least 60 different ways to say the word death or died. Each one has a slightly different connotation dependent upon the status of the person who has passed, the age of the deceased, the reason for the death, and the context surrounding the mention of the death in the first place. There's a word for dying single and unwed, one for the death of a prince, and one for someone who has died defending their moral integrity. 
there's a phrase to convey that someone has died sitting cross-legged and one that suggests that the deceased has gone to see a ghost. Each word or phrase provides insight into the speaker's relationship to the person who has passed, as well as the way in which that individual died. The specificity is meant to convey the importance of death because it matters how a person ultimately leaves this earth and who they are to the ones they leave behind. When I was younger, the two phrases my parents would use most often when referring to someone's passing was chu si and zola. The former means that someone has returned to the earth. The latter means that they have literally just gotten up and walked away. They've left. When my grandmother was hospitalized, my mother sent a lengthy text message to our family group chain to let everyone know that Amma had been rushed to the hospital and to keep her in our thoughts. Less than an hour later, she updated us with news that the nurse's aide had texted to say that she'd passed. Two hours and an emotional roller coaster later, my mother texted again. There had been a mistake. My grandmother was still holding on. She hadn't left just yet. Grandma is still okay at this point, my mother wrote. Maybe she's waiting for us to be there. She and my dad booked tickets that very night to fly out the next day to return home so my, brother, so my grandmother could finally leave. Sitting in the back of a taxi cab bound from my grandmother's house that morning in Taiwan, I felt a grand expanse of nothingness. The gray of the city smudged against the window as the cab raced along the rain-drenched highway. Transportation in Taiwan has always felt to me like moving through a thick stew. There's a viscous quality to the air, and even when cars are speeding along at a good clip, it can feel laborious. When my brother and I were younger, the metro system hadn't yet been built, and so whenever we traveled as a family anywhere around Taipei, it was either by bus or by cab. Bodies pressed upon bodies careening through busy streets. On the earlier visits, I remember my brother and me being told to crouch down on the floor in the back seat, just in case any police officers saw our tiny heads bobbing through the back windows. My grandparents and my parents would squeeze into the car, choosing to sacrifice space to save money, insisting that they were fine, no worries, on plastic vinyl covered seats. Then when we were older, my brother and I would alternate perching on the front of the seat or sitting back to make room for our elders to sit as comfortably as possible, still opting to cram into one cab rather than call two. My brother and I would still duck when police cars flew by. Finally, at a certain point in our early adolescence, it was no longer feasible for us to sit six grown people into a car meant to carry four. And so we would split off into two cars with three people each, split by gender, split by age, all of us split apart, but still together. This, I remember, was the closest we ever got to each other as a family, physically. My grandparents weren't really huggers, preferring stiff waves and smiles to over-sentimentality. Whenever my family and I traveled back to Taiwan, my grandmother would hurriedly welcome us into their third floor walk-up, taking our jackets and our backpacks, showing her love by lightening our load, always greeting us with the same phrase, Ni huelaila, or literally, you've returned. Each time, regardless of the hour, there would be some rice or porridge waiting for us on the dining room table, several small ceramic bowls and plates with assorted side dishes filling the glass-covered tabletop. What I remember most was listening to my mother talk about the flight, the traffic on the way in, the funny thing the customs officer said while we were waiting in line. My parents would say, would ask after my grandparents' health, my father inquiring about what pills the doctor had prescribed, whether my grandfather still had insomnia. These conversations were laden with subtext and only now in retrospect can I understand the significance of these questions, these gestures, these rituals. How was the flight? I was worried about how the kids would hold up with a long trip home. Was there a lot of traffic? The city's grown so much since the last time you were back. Let me see the new pills they're having you take. I'm sorry I'm not here to take care of you. Is he sleeping okay through the night? I'm sorry you're alone here taking care of him. 
The conversations are mostly held in Taiwanese, so I could only listen, absorb, observe. I took it all in. What wasn't being said, trips back to Taiwan were always spent doing things, jumping from activity to activity. Walks through the park, shopping trips and overwhelming department stores, elaborate home-cooked meals with relatives and family friends. It was though we feared the absence of activities, of what thoughts and emotions might arise in quieter moments. These were people whose blood pulsed through my veins, and yet my understanding of them as individuals often felt lacking. I didn't know how to begin to address the fact that while I was never wanting materially, I was still wanting. The sun was starting to lighten the sky as the cab pulled into the narrowing streets near my grandmother's home. She had moved the year following my grandfather's death, wanting to be physically distant from the ghosts of their joint past. Until her own passing, she had lived alone in a smaller, more modern condo with an elevator, situated next to a park she frequented less and less in the mornings. A live-in nurse's aide kept her company and tended to her needs when relatives were unable to visit. It all looked unchanged since my last trip just one year prior. The familiar white tiled buildings stacked almost one atop the other, laundry drying on twines strung, strung across balconies four, five, six stories up. The heavy silver metal doors just off the road with insignias carved into their surfaces, delineating one family's house from the next, lucky red scrolls and tassels moving gently in the early morning breeze. The roadside produce sellers were already beginning to peddle their wares. Somewhere in the not too, distant, not too far distance, a rooster crowed. The cab ground to a stop outside a nondescript metal door on road seven, a homecoming. In English, the word home is defined as the place where one lives permanently, especially as a member of a family or household. It's a rather literal definition, more fit for house or building in my mind than the emotional connotations that home conjure up. Even then, the idea of permanence feels anachronistic at best. By that definition, I cannot call Taiwan my home. Even though it is my motherland, it's dense air, the kind of thick that allows me to breathe most at ease. I do not live there, and the times I do visit are temporary, fleeting. And though I am a member of my family, yes, it has been years since we have existed as a household, slumbering under the same roof, and so the definition feels tentative at best. But recently, I came across another definition of home, this time as a verb, home, verb, of an animal, to return by instinct to its territory after leaving it. Perhaps this is what I had actually been doing each trip back to Taiwan over the years, first as a young child, then an adolescent, then finally as an adult, all various stages of in-betweenness. Perhaps I was never fully returning to a home, noun, traveling back to a time and a place that never really existed, so much as I was searching, home as a verb, burrowing down toward the roots of the protective tree my parents had planted, a new earth and ocean away. Home. Turns out I had been homing all along. Trace, I was squealing before I realized that I was next, so I had to unmute, but that was... Oh, I love home as a verb. I remember reading that initially and just feeling whew, so, so homed. Thank you um, for that. The first time I heard Abby read, I was stuck in an undertow. There was air just above me. I could feel it, but Abby wouldn't let me breathe. <laughs> she herself breathless as she read, made me want to gasp for the air that the poem refused. The first word I use to describe Abby's poetry is rhythm, but that doesn't quite do it justice. Rhythm, yes, but a beat, a clip, urgent and incessant and courageous and charged. The poems suck you under, move you beneath, pulling at the tender hooks of lilies and stamen and roots and vines that wrap around your own body. 
verbs like tongued and stemmed and gasping, eroded and lilted and caged. I once told Abby that I wasn't sure if I understood poetry always. And she said, do you feel it? And when I nodded, finally sure of something, she smiled and said, that's all a poet can ask. This is who Abby is, fierce, starlit, warm, unyielding, generous, careful undertow. She leads us as fellows when we are lost ducklings with her Google spreadsheets and plans of action. She leads us in conversation as we teeter toward the brink of absolute vulnerability. She helps us through our own storm. She brings us vegan cupcakes no matter where we live. She lifts us up, she flattens, she skewers, she shifts, and she burns. If Abby were a source of light, I think both of sunshine through a prism, the warm light that you feel on your face that reminds you to be soft with yourself, to drink in abundance, and of the hot coals beneath a fire that has been burning for hours. When you hold your hand over the earth, you feel first warmth, but closer and closer to heat, to burn. Something unshrinkable, amassed, ready to spark to action or hold someone. It's my deepest pleasure to introduce her tonight, you Capricorn queen, a whole piece of our hearts, Abby Polikoff. Oh my goodness, Piper, I'm like sitting here very emotional. <laughs> so now I just have to collect myself and thank you for that amazingly beautiful, beautiful introduction because I'm just, I'm so full and I don't think I would be able to be, be as full in this space without all of you. So thank you, my fellow fellows. Thank you to Laura and Kristen for leading us here to Rob and Hugo House for giving us this space and opportunity and for everyone watching and listening and participating in the chat with us tonight. That is just, it feels really special. Um, I am going to begin with um, um, what is an unexpected light in your life right now is my question. So please, I would love to know, please share that with me and us, all of us. Um, I am going to start with a quote from Kiki Petrosino's book, White Blood, which is an amazing, amazing book that I highly recommend everyone having on their bookshelves. Um, when I was thinking about lightness, I kept on coming back to this moment which is in the middle of a poem of hers. And it says, in the theory of the beloved, the living make do with tiny lights. So I hope that we all have tiny lights that we can hold in ourselves and among ourselves. Um, I am going to read uh, some poems that I have actually never read as a set before. I have a figure across the course of my manuscript, this lady who's a little controversial. Um, many people uh, read her and say, what is she doing here? And other people read her and say, she's absolutely here. Um, but I realized I'd never shared her as a unit before. And um, this group has taught me so much about risk. So I wanted to take this risk for you all tonight and read these poems. Wildflower mythology. First there was a lady, stem-wrapped and rooted, wide open and spinning in wildflowers, in gold threads, soil-soaked this display. These casual gifts, her wildflowers, 
and the wildflowers, their tendencies to consume breezes, to sip breath, all in good breeding, the wildflowers, the lady. Wildflowers slipped into their stems, greening just at the throat. The lady skirts the wildflowers, afraid of their tendencies, her good breeding. The lady skirts gold threaded now, wildflowers catching patterns in breezes, pulling up weeds as wildflowers, casual rifts, this soil soaked lady. The lady skirts, breezes, wheedling with stolen tongues. Shadow plucked, the wildflowers, a falter at the edge of breath, missing breezes. The lady, the wildflowers, their frail cacophonies, emptying their swallowed, their soundless stalks. If the mirror in its gilded frame beheld the body's greeneries, something lovely, a face of leisure, a leaning in. The next question, nothing more than a slung shoulder, a slipped stem into a gilded vase, an unstrung bodice. Would it be the lady or the thread tucking itself into a stretching fog, throating out a call or reply. It's a lovely thing to be the mirror, to be the lady. And with the neck in repose, what's the throat to do? Amnesty. The lady was not offering, and so they dissembled. Sapphire-tongued growth stretching for aftermath, and the lady seeps tea from lavender skeins to remember how to weep the skin. Raw deaths of the dried stalks and pleasure barrows, a falter, a falter after the breaths cool. The afternets, exclaiming in their bounty, how personal the sky once you've slept under it. Ask the lady. Ask her, ask her how she takes her tea. What else to do but this? And when the fog itself was full of wildflowers, a Cheshire evening, the lady wrapped herself into no breezes, just wildflowers at the throat, at the tide, the lady's throat a catching net, foggy, surging with wildflowers, their names. The wildflowers, the sea, emptying itself against its knees, casual gifts for the lady. The lady, her gifts, a decade of onyx luminesced at the wrist. At the wrist, tide light, annexed, wildflowers, annexed, the pulpy frothing of just plucked salt sifted from shore and stem. The lady and stems her wildflowers, why wait for something gold or growing? And ropes her wildflowers, opens their mouths in raptures, and pushes in their anthers, the lady, and pushes in their pulsing decadences, 
their anthems. And I am going to read one last poem that is a new poem. So another risk. This are impossible savorings. When the world spins itself into its tautness, I want to start that over because I was wrong. Sorry, risk, great. This are impossible savorings. When the world spins into itself, its tautness is more unruly than the axis it's made of, more unruly than its impossible invisible spindle. Spin, spin, spin into something to salivate for, something to devour. Its galactic need, the ego of it. See the world turned into its spindling and it's more than the world can handle. It's just what the body looks like when it's made only of desire. When it's made of desire, the world is all admonishment and premonition. Spin, spin, spin. See it. See it spinning electric, the body within it all neon and the body all the table's halogens, all its fluorescence, its metals glinty and cave light. All the world is made of can't be enough for the body, so okay then, it's not enough. It's not the body. It's the air that moves around it, how it spins itself around every soft cartilage. Spin, 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 spin. And you'd think it's about the body since it's always about the body, but this time it's really about the air, how it gives, how it makes way. Its resistance is what holds the body back into itself and holds it always there and always holds it, always in its tautness of worlding and pressure, in its tautness of stilling the air, air before itself. Spin, spin. In the in-between of the body and the air and the world, what it's really about is what it always returns for. Its patterns, its outrageous tendernesses. Spin, 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 spin. Itself pressing into its body and body pressing into the world and world pressing into the air, into the body. And there's nothing more simple than the world and looking closely at it. And no, really, looking closer and look closely and looking closer still and seeing the world spinning and seeing the tree in the world spinning and seeing the ocelot in the tree in the world spinning and wanting to be the spinning tree in the world that holds the spinning, spinning ocelot. Thank you. And now it is my absolute joy and honor and privilege and delight to get to introduce Piper Lane. I have gotten to know Piper over the last year and what astounds me is um, how much of Piper I see in her writing. And what I mean by that is that she attacks the page with the same lyrical ferocity in how she lives her life and goes after what she needs. She looks point blank at the world and isn't afraid to criticize or celebrate what she sees. And she celebrates 
everything. Um, and she applies that direction and vision to her writing as well. And whether that's in character building or in space setting across any part of her work. But this vision of hers also appears in literary spaces as an instructor, as a workshop participant. And at workshop, it's funny she mentioned this in her intro to me, but she would preface her feedback saying, I'm not a poet, but dot, dot, dot. And every time it would be the right kind and amount of incision into the moment to pull out what's needed. So I guess that is to say that Piper is a well-rounded literary citizen, human, and writer. And I cannot wait to have her book in my hands and curl up in a chair and turn to the first page and not get up until I'm done. And Piper mentioned some lightness that she saw in me that was um, prism-like. And it's funny because I actually see very similar things in her. And to me, Piper is both the full moon over the open water and the incoming fog that refracts the moonlight into its infinite sparkling corona. So please join me in welcoming the amazing Piper Lane. How did you all do this? <sighs> wow, it's amazing to be here tonight. Um, I need to think for a second. Um, I'm putting a question in the chat. Uh, you're answering a question in the chat. What meal makes you feel at home? Um, I'm also going to read some bell hooks and it's a much longer quote than everybody else read, but I, it was something that I really needed to hear today. And I think maybe every day in, in quarantine I've needed, I just need to post it somewhere, but so it's to my fellows. Um, but it, it also feels like it's going out to our community here today that I've been seeing so many familiar faces and voices and I'm just stunned at home, at home, how home, at home I feel. Joyce, how did you say home that many times? Okay. Um, I'm going to read it. We all long for loving community. It enhances life's joy. But many of us seek communities solely to escape the fear of being alone. Knowing how to be solitary is central to the art of loving. When we can be alone, we can be with others without using them as a means of escape. Loneliness is painful. Solitude is peaceful. Loneliness makes us cling to others in desperation. Solitude allows us to respect others in their uniqueness and create community. Moving from solitude into community heightens our capacity for fellowship with one another. Through fellowship, we learn how to serve and service is another dimension of communal love. That love lays the foundations for the constructive building of community with strangers. The love we make in community stays with us wherever we go. With this knowledge as our guide, we make any place we go a place where we return to love. Whew, so good shivers. Um, I'm so emotional to be here with you all today, all of you in the audience and these fellows who have buoyed me and held me in a year I desperately needed holding. Um, this is an early chapter from the novel. It's told in the first person plural from the point of view of two eight-year-old girls, Essa and Maureen. And I'm gonna be yelling probably because I'm trying to channel my girl gang 
voice. Um, so just maybe turn your volume down a little bit. I don't have to, the mic won't be in the way. Um, they're the younger cousins on a boat within a communal fishing family. Um, and you'll hear about the girl boat, which is uh, their cousin Bristol runs a boat full of young women. And when they pull up, uh, they can, they raft up as one big long raft, meaning that all the boats are connected by lines and anchored up so they can actually hop from boat to boat. So that's context is important in this world. We are the queens of this court. We are the boss boss. We run up and down these galleys and decks and we tell the boys exactly what to do. We tell them to get on their knees and swear a blood oath to our beating hand hearts. We'd rip their eyes out if we could. When we frown, because we are Moreno babies through and through our eyebrows become one long bushy caterpillar. When the men come home with the deer, we want to help. We'd watched Frozen and Moana all day, our favorites, but our knees bounced up like electric currents ran through us. Sitting still reminds us of school. We want to take a knife and run it smooth beneath fur, pluck the muscles from that gunky white stuff that sticks in your teeth. But instead they push us away and we pout, but of course no one notices. We wait for five whole minutes or maybe two long enough, but when no one looks, we nod at each other and cackle below deck to check on our dead. In the engine room, the heat and the roar blows the hairs off our necks and out of our faces. We thank our tangles, Marine's smooth knot and Essa's frizzy poof. We don't care about how we look, especially when we are alone. And out here with no mirrors, we only see each other, feral and alive. We are creature, animal, salmon, soon to be mermaid. We scoot behind the big starboard motor where no one else can fit but us. We open the shoebox balance there, a cardboard box that could hold shoes or screws or tools or nuts or bolts, but here live our treasures, our dead. It began when we stole a knife from Sully's bunk, the one with the twine wrapped and wrapped, and when no one was watching, we carved around the edges of the jaw of a chum salmon. They're dinosaur teeth. The word prehistoric, pre means before, history means before. We've done this before, six times, six jaws, six times two sets of teeth in the box. We know about mummies. We know that someday soon when we are called to the deep to be mermaids, we will need the teeth. We can do everything else ourselves, grow the tail, the fins, the gills, we'll breathe underwater, but we will need teeth. Our own weak in our mouth, soft, no edges. And so we save these to place in our own jaws someday, ready to hunt and tear apart skin and bone, taste blood. Sometimes when we are alone, we prick the tips of our fingers with Sully's twine knife and we suck on the end until the bleeding stops. We could eat raw, we've decided, through these experiments. Salty, iron, flat. Without the body of the salmon, just the jaw there, we could pretend a puppet show, a soulless one with no eyes or ears, just all mouth. We are all mouth. We scream down there and no one can hear us. We look each other in the eyes, yelling, laughing, singing silly songs and know that no one can hear us down here. The engines chug along. We are not allowed to touch, but no one can stop our guts, our bellies, our bellows. We cackle and chomp our chum jaws up and down like pantomimes. 
Do we hear or feel the bump of the boat? Something scratches along the bow and we bobble. Someone has tied up to the raft, someone new. We look at each other in recognition of sound, of shape, of feel, and our lights dance between us knowing the girls are back. After we have swung from their rafters, clung to their tables, after we have found their last chocolate stash and stolen into the cupboard, splitting between us even Stevens, after we have pouted and screeched at each other, the cupboards are hidden cave where we pinch and bruise and giggle at each fart, we come out a little worse for wear and everyone is gone. Alone in the girl kitchen, alone in the girl house, the girl boat, the girl bathroom, we are Snoopy. I've heard you put these up your butt, Essa says, when we find a big box of thin wrapped something or others in the bathroom. I don't believe you, Maureen says. We run the water in the sink. We open one up. It is thin, white, and cottony, stuffed up in a little tube. Watch, Essa says, and scrunches it out, throws it into the filling sink. Our eyes widen as it grows from half an inch to one, two, three. We go, how does it fit? What does it do in there? No way, Maureen says, there's no way. The door bangs open and closed and we quick turn the water off but leave the fan and sopping butt ball in the sink, scamper upstairs. What's going on in here? Luz says, her hands perched on her hips. She leans her head to the side like a dog does when it wants a treat. We turn our fists out like what? You both look guilty as hell. We like that phrase, guilty as hell. We laugh, yes, we are guilty as hell. Hell is guilty, ha, and we scamper up loose to distract her from the butt ball in the sink, growing soggy there for someone to find. We hope a boy finds it and we hope he is disgusted. Luce's limbs are thin and strong and she can hold us both at once. Essa at her feet and Marine at her hip and she drags us across the floor to the kitchen, pulling us off. We cling harder. If arms come off, legs stick. Both of us starfish sucking to a rock. As soon as she moves to the next, the other clings back. She laughs. Okay, okay, that's enough. But we are hungry for warm blood and we can't let go, we won't. All we have touched is each other and meanly. Luce is warm and soft and when she pulls us off, she doesn't grip to bruise. Gentleness is a language we do not speak. We want to be inside her skin. We want to be the gentle body she lays down to rest. Why won't she hold us up, our weight now hers to bear? Then she is out of breath and sits on the stool. She is quiet and her body goes still. She lets us rest there with her, still clung, until our butts hurt and our arms get tired. And she lets us decide when to let go, which is soon because the game is never as fun if someone is not fighting us. Luce laughs, she gets up from the table, she fills the teapot with water. We watch her, we can hear them outside. In here, we could be quiet for whole minutes together. If we were quiet, we could hear every word everybody spoke around us, above us. Words we don't know could circle up in steam and disappear. Escapement, hydraulics, reefer, freon, coolant. The teapot screams and we jump with it like we're the flame. 
Luce has placed mugs in front of us, a sugar bowl, and she pours so steam floats up between us all. We can see her through the hot, muggy air, wisps of hair falling from her pony, and we reach up to touch our own, seeing if somehow our tangles have disappeared into these pretty strings of light. Phew, thank you. <laughs> I now get to introduce Shelby. So when, uh, when I first heard Shelby share their poetry, it was at our first reading together as Hugo House Fellows. And uh, we had already been hanging out for a while, but when I heard Shelby read, I was like, oh my God, and thought about all the times that I'd probably like been awkward and embarrassing around Shelby. I all of a sudden was just like, oh my God, I'm too shy to talk to Shelby now. Uh, <laughs> she electrified our minds with uh, just mind bending perspectives on holes, for example. <laughs> and I afterward felt my worldview broaden. I mean, nothing less than how I looked at the world uh, in, with the width of Shelby's vision and presence that comes through their poetry. And so Shelby's poetry and being is nothing short of the blessing of expansion. I really think that to meet Shelby Handler is to wish that you had known Shelby for all of your life and also to feel like you have. To know Shelby might also make you feel like you want to be Shelby. Uh, she is disarming, ebullient, and funny as hell. And uh, their poetry, like I said, I just gotta repeat it again, it just stuns, prepare to be stunned. Their earrings are also to die for. And they work for justice and liberation with a really uncommon sense of just absolute joy and ease. From day one of the fellowship, Shelby has been that person who just makes you feel really good. And that's no easy feat, especially during 2020. I felt like Shelby always helped me feel calm and would like calm my anxieties while also challenging all of us to be better artists and in deeper dialogue with our local communities and the world. I'm just in constant awe of how effortlessly Shelby weaves together activism, organizing art, and friendship. Uh, I am going to paste Shelby's um, bio into the chat after this. Um, but in addition to those accolades that you're going to read, you might not know that Shelby basically has a black belt in Zoom facilitation. I mean, to experience Shelby's Zoom facilitation, is, it's like a once in a lifetime experience. I've, I had never experienced it before. Um, and can also, she can also turn like dreaded Google Docs, I hate Google Docs, into like works of art. So just amazing skills, very well-rounded person. Uh, and Shelby is really light, Shelby is light. Um, but to choose specific sources of light, that make me think of Shelby, I would also say that Shelby is the full moon because they're a brilliant beacon in the dark and because they reflect the powerful light of everything and everyone around them. And Shelby's also like a crystal because she's kind of magic and sharp and um, 
you just are about to be dazzled. So here is the one and only Shelby Handler. Oh my goodness. Oh, whoa, Jen, thank you. Thank you all. I do feel really verklempt. I was like, I'll be fine. I'll hold it together. No, no. Thank you all. It's so special to be here. And yeah, I just am. I'm just really odd. Truly, truly. Um, oy. Okay. So um, the quote and the question that I have for y'all is um, a quote, uh, actually two really short quotes from the sci-fi author N.K. Jemisin. If you all haven't read her work, you should. These are from two books in the Broken Earth series. Um, and I've just been thinking a lot about this idea of endings. It's been a week of endings for me. And so I'm holding a lot of that right now. And I wanted to share these quotes with you all, which it's I'm sure on all of our minds. Um, so this is like the very beginning of the first book in this trilogy. Let's start with the end of the world. Why don't we get it over with and move on to more interesting things? And well, some worlds are bit, built on a fault line of pain held up by nightmares. Don't lament when those worlds fall. Rage that they were built doomed in the first place. So I'm just, I'm just thinking about, you know, all the mini apocalypses that are happening at all times. And I think because I'm shielded from so many things, I'm like, ah, the apocalypse. And I'm like, wait, actually like the world is undone and done over again every day for so many people. And that's really horrific and full of potential, especially in these times. So thinking about this pandemic as a portal offering that Arundhati Roy gave us at the start of this. Anyway, so that's what I'm thinking about. And that's kind of what these poems are thinking about. Um, and the, but the question I have for y'all is, is there any ways you've been marking endings or grieving them in this time? It might be a really small way. Um, and it's okay if you don't have an answer, like maybe the chat is silent because it's really hard to do this, but I'm honestly just curious, like if there's little ways that people mark endings or make room for grief right now, because it feels slightly impossible. Okay. There were horses. Long before us, there were horses in our backyard, muttering muscled beasts, hauling buggies out of the carriage house they slept inside, delivering milk, bricks, ropes, meats to a town that would become a city and a home to little girl children who suck down gooseberries, stick out their aching bellies while prying pill bugs from the edges of the lawn. The lawn that velvety horses once upon long before the girls arrived with their poppin', poppy pollen fingers, pupils pinwheeling from running against the wind. We were those girl children. We got caught in thunderstorms. We hoarded pine needles and cracked cottonwood twigs at their elbows to reveal the soft black stars inside. Once we fought over a wishbone, but finally one of us won, snapped it, 
the wish spiraled out in urgent, invisible smoke. And perhaps that's one way to say how fast we grew, how our ankles sprouted out the gate and flung our bodies against our future selves. We scribbled the day's date at the top of our diary pages and didn't think about our mother dying or our father losing hair, teeth, speech, song, maybe even in that order. We didn't imagine a future stranger scouring our cursive for the year it was written, imagining who we were, how we looked while writing it when it was the present. It doesn't matter. It is good we did not inspect the peeling paint of the carriage house too closely. We never thumbed the ridges where the cart entrances had been filled in with bricks. We barely noticed how the opening's outline still remained. This would have proved there were horses here once. Hungry, snorting, galloping horses. The last colt to leave the threshold before it became a wall. Never knew he was the last one. And this next poem is called May. May. All one can do is begin again. The sun planting his hands into wet sand over and over, each time demanding clear water doused over his palms. I drink from the same hose. May my body become clean through need. A man yells, Happy Mother's Day, from the other side of the street with enough urgency to convince me I am becoming a mother or that I have one who chose me. What I could not earn, I already needed to survive. The pill dissolves on my tongue before I can swallow it. Yes, I, I may be a mother to some things, my bacterias, my scabs can hate your body for reminding me of my body. I can overfish lilac from trees to infect the house with spring. I pull scapes out of hardneck garlic like uncorking bubbly bottles at a baby shower where every mouth fizzes gold except the waiting mothers. My body was cut out of your cloth, and now I'm the only one who can stain it. There are strawberries so ripe, they rot on the way to the mouth. I fill my cheeks with their bloody seeds. How can I contain this? How may I receive this? This being the first sickness I did not inherit. I told you it was all the sad ones. Sorry, guys. <laughs> it's like my inclination to make jokes. So I'm just going there. We're all just doing what we can. Okay, I'm going to read one last poem. And um, I'm going to do something that I haven't done on an online reading, but I've wanted to dare to do so. So I'm going to actually share my screen. <laughs> and show you this poem because the shape of the poem I think 
does matter. And I'm just kind of curious. And also when I hear poems auditorially, I always want to be reading them too. So if you're like that, then it's your lucky night. Um, okay. So as you can see, this poem is a weird shape and it's the shape of it is um, based on the song of the sea as it appears in the Torah. If you've ever looked in that part of the text, of the original text, it has really cool holes. You all know I love holes, I love the gaps. And so I was like, I wanna write a poem responding to the song of the sea, which is like when the sea splits, you know, Moses, the sea, the dancing, it's all that. So I really love that there's holes built into this. So, um, so yeah, but it's, also really weird and in a whole other universe. So thanks for going with it. The author catalogs her parallel realities and the shtetl parts the multiverse. I have it on good authority that all of this is occurring right now. Once unraveled from telephone wires, all those sneakers sailed onto the shivering toes of ghosts and the ghosts jogged away somewhere I should have terminated you is never written by my father's mother in his 50th birthday card. In that universe, I can call my grandmother to ask the name of the village we came from. Information cannot be shared across universes easily. My mother gets to choose if she wants children, so I disappear, but not all at once. My throat became a pile of onion skins, ruffled away, layer by layer by layer. I'm taking a lavender bath. I'm cracking a creme brulee. I take out the trash and I get my wheels stuck in the sand. Yes, I watch the sea split. I turned around to ensure it closed behind us. I am finally giving a proper burial to every crawdad lured away from home into my pink bucket. I pat their graves like new pets. I sleep so deeply. I wake up spooning shovels when the phone rings. Other universe grandma whispers the shtetl's name into the receiver and hangs up. Black radishes multiply in my bed, astringent shadows between ankles. Suddenly we say aloud what we need. Plums arrive in the pockets of our other selves. I must make a crown now of marigolds I picked while weeping on the train. Home is something I understand, I brag to the vultures. Like this, shaking a snow globe containing a diorama of the land we came from. Well, at least the graveyard that swallowed the townspeople. I have a lot to be grateful for. I sigh across every universe, almost in unison, like a wet finger on a crystal glass. The same echo as when I sat in a tunnel underneath a street drain. I was watching my aunt's feet shuffling around, snarling my name. I am hidden under the couch. I arrange chewed fingernails into moon phases to pass the time. I floss nightly, peering into the gaps in my teeth, expecting bats. 
I sort buttons, I squeeze lemons, I rip seams, I tear open envelopes, I cut pills into mouse teeth, I wind red thread around my ring finger, I finally finish all my mending, what was once broken keeps me warm. Thank you all. Thank you all so much. And now, oh my goodness, I have the glorious, glorious honor of introducing our final reader for the evening. I'm gonna put um, her, her earthly bio in the chat, um, but I'm gonna introduce her in the luminousness that her presence and her work I think demands. Um, so, oh my gosh, okay. So Jen, I like told Jen this recently, but I, Jen Soriano people, that's who's coming up. Start giving it up. If we were in person, we'd basically be stomping, okay? Jen Soriano truly in my eyes is a legend. I literally like heard about her like multiple years before we were in this fellowship, but I was definitely way too shy and nerdy to say anything. Um, I was, and I only revealed this like at our last reading, but I, her work precedes her, the work that she's done in movements to um, carve the messages that we need to create a more just world. She's been doing that work for a long time as an organizer, and she brings that same liberatory hopefulness to her creative nonfiction and to her poetry. Um, and so now I'm going to read a little bit. This is my pre-prepared thing. Jen Soriano is a writer whose work is located within the body, reckoning with its magics, griefs, and potentialities for liberation. Jen's work travels across time and space, across generations and oceans. Through exacting prose and poetry, she carves paths towards healing, and in doing so, she brings along her child, her family, her past and present selves, her ancestors of blood and of struggles for justice. Jen forges connections between body and history, trauma and pain, science and story. If Jen were a light source, and this was hard, this was a hard decision, but the thing that initially first came to my mind that I just decided to stick with is she would be a lantern, like a heavy lantern carried in the fist of a fierce woman who is stepping into a cave that is somehow both an entrance to the past and to the future that we so, so badly need. And so tonight we're really lucky because we actually get to be led into that generative darkness by Jen Soriano. So please give it up. Ah, thank you so much, Shelby. That was a gift. I appreciate you so much. So I am so honored to be able to close out this night. I hope you all have felt that it was as special as I feel like it was. I am um, gonna ask folks to share on that actually. And cause my chat question is what's a word to describe how you feel as we close out this reading. And um, I am going to read a quote. It's an excerpt from 
an amazing, another amazing poet, um, Jasmine Reed, from, uh, from her new collection, Deus Ex Negrum. Jasmine's a black trans poet from Baltimore. I had the good fortune of meeting last year. And uh, it's from a poem called Night Bloom. Night blooming, vesper tuned to the stars, might change, might life, might rearrange everywhere's night. Follow me, moon, sickle, knife. Still I'm alive with light. I'm going to read two things to close us out. One of them is uh, a piece from my chat book that I have never read before. And um, you know, one of the, and the, the second thing I'll give you a preview <laughs> is a slam poem. My first ever, because I am not a slam poet. Uh, <laughs> so we'll see how that goes. Uh, so this first piece is called Raising Boys. That's R-A-Z-I-N-G. Um, one of the things uh, that has brought me the most relief, not joy, relief over the past couple months is the fact that we made it through election season without mass violence. And this is a meditation on violence and the origins of violence. And so I wanted to share that um, to be grateful for the humanity that has um, kept us going through some very dark years. Um, and I wrote this in September, 2015, which was a year before Trumpocalypse, but it was already somewhat of a dark time. I think most of you will remember that there was a photo of a three-year-old Syrian boy whose body had washed up on shore and that photo went viral. And it's credited with you know, sparking international consciousness of this Syrian refugee crisis, which continues today. And he was a Syrian refugee named Alan Kurdi. Uh, he was only three, as I had said, and um, he had drowned essentially as his family continued to try to flee the Syrian civil war and the repression of the al-Assad regime. I was a new mom at the time and I couldn't help but see my own toddler son in Alan's image. And so this is what I wrote in response. It's sort of a documentary prose poem after Carolyn Forshay's The Colonel. And just a note about his name, it is Alan. The media had originally misprinted it as Ilan. Um, and that's how it appears in my chat book because I didn't know about the correction until recently, but I'm going to read it as Alan because that was his name. Raising boys. They come like a murder of crows. Six still small boys toting toy guns shaped like semi-automatics. A troop of tousled hair and soccer shorts they siege the playground with aggression too old for their years. They surround the cracked concrete wading pool. My son drops his tiny shovel. He gazes openly on the newcomers, soaks in their war cries. I shot you. I've got more bullets. You're dead. A mother grips her toddler by the wrist as they cross the empty pool. Her eyes dart left then right at the circling boys. She touches her son's head, then tugs him forward by the sleeve of his baby bomber jacket. The gunslingers growl and aim. They shriek and shoot. Bam, I got you, they laugh. 
The toddler in his bomber jacket cries, but my son laughs, his face bursting into dimples and milk teeth. Still smiling, he returns to the sand and begins to dig a hole with his sneakered toe. The sand is wet and pebbled, the color of bone, not unlike the sand of that distant Turkish shore where Alan Curdy lay face down, palms up and belly resting on the beach, lifeless but dressed for a new day. Alan and his mother rose with hope that morning. She had chosen his clothes with care, a tender mother but firm. She wrestled to keep his three-year-old body still enough so she could dress him in a red shirt, blue shorts, and black Velcro sneakers. The red shirt said in comic strip font, mystery space riders, below a cartoon astronaut in a rocket ship. Now, Alan and his astronaut lie face down in the sand. He is still in his red shirt, blue shorts, and black Velcro sneakers. The tide laps at his freshly cut hair. Alan's lips are forever sealed, but his sneakers, his waterlogged sneakers are eloquent. They are black and yellow, both dark and light with crisscrossed treads for traction. These are sturdy sneakers. Sneakers meant to dig holes in sand. Sneakers eager to tread on play ground. A spray of sand flies as my son kicks his abandoned shovel away. Here on the playground, the practice war has ended. The mother has crossed the wading pool. She removes her toddler's bomber's jacket. He is still crying. My son digs a larger hole with his sneakered toe. The shooting boys pound fists, disperse, and head home to hot meals around fine kitchen tables. They have learned to walk with elbows crooked and toy guns pointed toward the sky. Okay, here comes <laughs> the slam poem. <laughs> so again, I am not a slam poet. <laughs> and um, yeah, just give everybody a moment to breathe after that. Um, and I will just tell you by way of introduction here that I wrote this poem um, as part of a class that I took at Hugo House that I wouldn't have been able to take were it not for the fellowship. So I feel very grateful for that. Um, and it was a class with Nikita Oliver on political poetry. Um, so here it is, here we go. Th shout out to the folks from that class who came. Thank you for coming to support me. <laughs> they know that this, 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 I was very nervous about this. Um, so it's a piece after Janine Verley's unsolicited advice to adolescent girls with crooked teeth and pink hair. Um, and I'm not really gonna do it slam style, but let's just see how it goes. <laughs> It's called use your words or unsolicited advice to second and third generation Asian Americans. When they ask you how you speak English so well, don't feel proud. When they ask why your name is Italian, don't apologize because it isn't. When they ask if you work at the Chinese restaurant down the street, ask if you can take their order and their money. When they tell you to go eat bat, Tell them to go eat baby cow. When they ask you where you're from, say Chicago. When they ask where are you really from, say my mama. 
When they say, you know what I mean, where are you really from? Stand proud, say, my ancestors are from the Philippines and I'm here because the United States was there. How about you? Do not say I'm American. Do not defend your inclusiveness in the burning house that is America. Redefine what made this land the settler country that it is. When they ask if Asians are essentially anti-Black, say no. When they ask if Asians are the model minority, say hell no. When they ask if Asians are essentially white, say no, but be ready to have the conversation. Practice it and let these words roll off your tongue. Relative access to privilege in the racial hierarchy invented and imposed by white supremacy. Remember, this is a conversation, not a lecture in which you might learn something too. When they treat you like a lily, growl at them. When they call you a tiger mom, eat them. When they say you're a crazy rich Asian, remind them of the low wage workers who make their high priced smartphones. No, not in China, but in California, in Silicon Valley in the good old US of A. When they ask, but what are you again? Say, I'm hungry. When they ask, are you Japanese, Korean, Laotian? Say, I'm not your wife. I'm not your friend's wife. And I'm not your girlfriend from the base where you were last stationed. When they ask, well, what are you really? Say, I'm whomever I want to be. And then be your fierce, intelligent, radiant, yellow, brown, black, white passing, mixed race, multi-ethnic, East or South or Southeast Asian self. Be your monolingual, multilingual, ESL, NB, trans, cis, intersex, questioning self. Be you an Asian stereotype detonator. You will explode their narrow minds with your expansive being. Take up space. When they walk at you on the sidewalk, don't move, unless they're not wearing a mask, then move really far away. When they interrupt you, speak louder. When they diminish you, outshine them. When they fetishize you, outsmart them. When they alienate you, outorganize them. When they use you as a wedge, build, Bridges, build bridges, like we built railroads, like we harvested grapes and sugarcane, like we canned salmon, like we nursed and cared for the young and the sick and the elderly, like we continue to do today, like we run the bases, like we run the court, like we run for office, like we continue to organize for our humanity, for black lives, for decolonization, for climate justice, for a multiracial democracy, for liberation. And when they ask, how you speak English so well, use your words. Thank you. Thanks for tuning into this episode of Speakers Forum. For KUOW 94.9 Seattle, Hugo House is a space committed to helping writers where people can read words, hear words, and make their own words better. This event was a celebration and the conclusion to Hugo House's 2019-2020 Fellowship Writing Program. It featured the works of Sasha Lapointe, Abby Polakoff, Joyce Chen, Piper Lane, Shelby Handler, and Jen Soriano. Tune in again soon.